Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Supporting Participants with Complex Behavioral Health Needs. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on March 14, 2018. In this podcast, Sue Abderholden, Executive Director at NAMI, Minnesota, provides a basic understanding of behavioral health in connection to living with other disabilities and discusses models of recovery and engagement. Thank you so much. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, disabilities and behavioral health. Next slide. When we look at the categories, um, we can think of a couple things. One is, is that mental health is on a continuum. So you might have someone with just more mild depression or anxiety um, or you know, more serious mental illness, such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or depression or anxiety that really is impacting someone's ability to function and to you know, kind of carry out the everyday um, activities of living. When we look at substance use disorders, um, one thing we really need to think about is that often we see people with um, especially serious mental illnesses really kind of using alcohol as self-medication. Um, so, you know, if I if I drink or if I smoke marijuana, I'm fitting in a little bit better and I'm feeling a little bit better about myself, at least temporarily. Um, and so sometimes it's not viewed totally as an addiction, but really more as uh, misuse. Go to the next slide. Looking at the prevalence of mental illness, so generally in the population, it's around 20%, 20 to 25%, depending on which study that you use. But we also know that mental illnesses in particular um, co-occur with certain medical conditions, um, particular things like heart disease, um, uh, hypertension, diabetes, uh, MS, um, those kinds of things. And so what you're going to see a lot of is um, a lot of people having both. And on, as you can see on the slides from some of the data, about 50% of people who are duly eligible um, also have some type of mental health uh, condition, mental health or substance use disorder. Go to the next slide. When we think of this, um, I think the thing that we all need to be concerned about is that people who have a co-occurring disorder also have a tougher time in terms of managing both conditions. Um, they end up being having longer inpatient stays for their healthcare conditions. And if you think about the symptoms of mental illness in terms of someone not being able to focus or remember things, uh, perhaps even get out of bed, you know, be able to cook a healthy meal, that can really impact those other types of conditions, you know, particularly diabetes and heart conditions. Um, and so they end up seeing and using a lot more healthcare resources than others. On the next slide, we also know that people with a serious mental illness tend to die earlier, and it is not due to suicide, but it's actually due to healthcare conditions, again, diabetes, heart disease in particular. And it can be a couple of different reasons for that. Um, one is, is that there are medications sometimes that really do promote weight gain, and so that can lead to those types of conditions. Um, also, what we've seen is that healthcare providers sometimes don't treat people with mental illnesses their symptoms in the same way. We have many people that don't want to tell an emergency room, for example, that they're living with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder because they feel that those, um, their symptoms will be dismissed because of their mental illness. Um, next slide. Now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the um, functional limitations. 
Next slide. So we know that um, people with disabilities are less likely to receive comprehensive preventive care. We know that people with serious mental illnesses generally don't even have a primary care physician, so they're not getting those kinds of things. They're really just connected to a mental health clinic or mental health center. Um, and when people are really experiencing both conditions, um, a physical health condition and a mental illness, they're not getting sometimes either of them addressed very well. Um, and they're certainly not getting them addressed in the same time. Um, next slide. One of the problems when people um, do have a substance use disorder or are abusing substances is it can impact their lives in a lot of negative ways. Um, one way is, you know, it may prevent them from successfully engaging in their rehab services. Um, it certainly can interact with a number of different of the medications. Um, it can lead to more accidents, um, you know, if they're, for example, you know, drunk and, and not being able to be, you know, physically stable, um, that can lead to more injuries. It certainly, it certainly contributes to things like social isolation, um, bad interactions with family and friends or people who work with them to help them, and it, and it does add in terms of um, hurting their overall health. Um, and really hastening some of those um, you know, disabling illnesses. Um, the other thing that we find too is that a lot of treatment facilities, including halfway houses and things like that, um, are not very accessible. Um, they might be older homes and some poor neighborhoods and things like that, and so um, it can be very difficult for people to access that care. Um, next slide. One thing I did want to mention, and having worked kind of in many different areas of the disability world, we are very sensitive to people first language, you know, persons with disabilities. We don't use the R word anymore. We don't use words like lame. But when it comes to mental illness, we still have a lot of derogatory words. So when you think about the slang words for mental illness, there's, a lots, of that, there's lots of them, nuts, crazy, psycho but we don't have slang words for diabetes or heart disease or cancer. And it really does impact a person's ability to come forward saying that they're living with these symptoms. So it's really important that we think about the language that we're using when we're working with people who have a disability and a mental illness. Next slide. So we wanna talk um, briefly now about recovery and engagement, which I think is really important. Next slide. The recovery um, is really a, a process kind of of learning to live um, with what's going on uh, in your life. Um, let's see, we should be on slide 23, I believe. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a cure, recovery is not a cure, but it actually means that your symptoms um, are in remission and that it's not impeding um, your life goals and what you're trying to do. Um, engagement is really about building on someone's strengths and not on um, their weaknesses. And so it's really looking at, you know, instead of what the person can't do, what the person can do is really important. Uh, next slide. So when we look at working towards recovery, um, what we often see is that we have focused on the individuals, not on the individual's goals, but on the provider goal. So the provider goal might be, you know, we're going to make sure you don't get bed sores. We're going to make sure that you get out of your apartment, perhaps. 
um, but we're not really looking at what does the person really want and how are we engaging them in that treatment plan so that they actually work towards recovery. Um, we also have to think about um, you know, what other kinds of um, services and supports are they getting and how can that all be integrated as well. We really want to make sure that we look at what those barriers are in terms of moving forward. Um, we've had people say, you know, you need to get out and walk around the block every day. Well, the problem might be that um, it might not be a particularly safe neighborhood or the sidewalk is not really well uh, maintained and so that can create a barrier. Um, so really kind of looking at that. And also, we've certainly seen this in other areas, um, particularly in developmental disabilities, but making sure that there are people who are not paid to be with them, so that we have those informal supports in the community that help. Um, one of the things that we've certainly found in the mental health field is when you ask someone with a mental illness when they were hospitalized, did they ever receive a Get Well card, they're all going to say no. And if you have to ask the families, did they ever re receive a, well, in Minnesota we would call it a hot dish, um, did they ever get brought a meal, the answer is going to be no. And so there aren't those kinds of community supports that you get for any other illness. Next slide. Really looking at what the resources are in the community, we find that people, you know, we all have our silos, and so the mental health community may not know of some of the health care or disability resources and vice versa. Um, there are a lot of options available in the community that people should be able to receive. A lot of it is um, through Medicaid or social services and not necessarily private insurance, although some of these things, if parity is enforced, would be available. Assertive community treatment teams, you know, in-home services are important. Um, clubhouses or drop-in centers um, so where that people can meet others who are experiencing something similar so they don't feel like they're going through this alone is important. Supportive housing is hugely important for people um, to really help keep them stable and so that the housing is affordable. And employment is huge. And while we have evidence-based practices like uh, IPS or individual um, uh, services and supports, what we don't see is anyone really understanding accommodations in the workplace for a mental illness. They might understand what those accommodations are if someone is in a wheelchair, but not if they have a serious mental illness. And then really looking at what are those integrated dual diagnosis treatments for someone who have, has a mental illness and a substance use disorder. They're often treated separately, and you can't because you really don't know which came first, and you need to treat them both at the same time. And we do see a lot of pushback in terms of medication-assisted substance use disorder treatment. Next slide. Um, NAMI's done some um, not very scientific surveys, but certainly surveys of individuals and families. And we asked them, you know, what are what do people really need in order to get the you know get the appropriate treatment for recovery? Um, the first thing that always comes up is housing. Um, housing, housing, housing is always the number one. Um, people want alternatives to 12-step programs. Um, they feel that that doesn't work very well, and a lot of 12-step Programs are more faith-based, and we have people with mental illness who felt that they've really been pushed out of their faith community and so don't want to um, engage in something like that. Um, looking at, again, trying to treat the whole person if they have medical issues as well. Um, integrated treatment programs uh, help with getting employment, so there's a reason to get up in the morning. Um, again, medication-assisted treatment, assistance with insurance barriers in particular, um, culturally competent care comes up a lot, and then we do have people who want more gender-specific programming. 
Um, next slide. I'm going to just kind of whip through these right now because we're starting to run out of time. You know, I think when we're looking at trying to, you know, really coordinate all the services, we really need to make sure that, again, we're asking the person what it is that they want, their short and long-term goals. How do we build that communication with different providers? For example, if somebody really wants to work but their medication makes it impossible for them to wake up in time, can we work with a prescriber to change the medication so that they can get to work on time, for example? Um, making sure that their healthcare needs and their disability needs are also taken care of, and making sure that the people who are coming in, if it's a personal care assistant, actually understands de-escalation and how to help someone through a crisis. On the next slide, we also need to make sure that we understand what those barriers are. Um, we have seen quite a bit that people don't recognize that you can have a serious mental illness and be a parent. And so the reason that someone might not be participating in treatment or a DBT group or something like that is because they don't have childcare. That can be a huge barrier for families, and yet um, often we don't actually think about that. The other thing we see, again, is that each, each provider has their own goal for the individual, but they're not connected. And so we're not recognizing as a team what those barriers are to meeting all of those goals or making sure that the goals aren't conflicting. Next is engagement. The next slide. Engagement is a key, is really key to recovery. Um, someone has to want to get better. Someone has to have, have a reason to get better. And when we think of Jose, he's like, well, I don't have a reason to get better, right? I, what future do I have? And so really helping them think about, even if it's small goals that they set so that they're moving in the right direction. Um, and we have to make sure that there, again, is, is compassion involved, you know, really understanding, well, yeah, I bet your life isn't great right now, but what are some things that could make it be better? Let's really kind of talk about that. If you have no friends, how can we have you help you develop some? On the next slide, um, again, making sure that people have that support network. Jose needs some friends. He needs some family members. Um, and what have we done to really help facilitate that? And what have we done in the communication process as well? Next slide. No one gets through a serious illness by themselves. And I have to say that in the mental health community in particular, um, HIPAA is often used as a shield instead of a way to involve and engage families. Families don't want medical records. They want to know how to help their loved one. And particularly when it comes to mental illness, they never got this in their health class, so they don't know how to help a loved one. They don't know how to offer advice. They're often actually given very bad advice from other people, use tough love and things like that, which don't really help at all. And so we need to understand that families are often the canary in the coal mine. They are often the safety net for people, and we need to figure out how to engage them um, so that they can really help their loved one get better as well. Um, when we look at Jose's family, did they really get any information about the fact that depression would come with this, and how could they help them, him with that? On the next slide, improving engagement, um, again, is looking at to just make sure that the person is engaged and the family, that strength-based language, so that we're really um, working on, you know, helping the person get stronger and not just addressing their weaknesses. Um, how do you work effectively across diverse cultures? Really respecting the decisions. It might not be a decision that we like, but you know, if it's a step in the right direction, that's a good thing. 
that shared decision-making model is really important. We're not saying, well, this is your medication. Have we asked them what's worked before? Have we asked them what types of side effects they really can't live with? Um, really working with them on that. Using motivational interviewing to address resistance or ambivalence, you know, looking at even the stages of change to help get them there. And then the last slide is, you know, I think providers can really move forward if we learn more about each other. So we really want to make sure that when you're in the physical disability or developmental disability world, that you're really learning more about mental illnesses and how is that different um, than, you know, than the situation where, that you're in. We hear a lot person-centered planning, but when you talk to adults with mental illnesses, they really hate that language. Um, even though we all know what it means as professionals, but it, it just comes off odd because we don't really talk about that with other healthcare conditions necessarily. Um, understand again the challenges that if you have a substance use disorder or you're abusing to make yourself feel better, um, how can we work with the person on that? Make sure you know who's available in your community. Um, how can mental health and substance use disorder facilities become more accessible to people with disabilities? I think that's really important. And again, bringing everyone together, you know, a primary care physician, case manager. And we've seen some places where um, you have a drop-in center where actually you have a, a nurse or a nurse practitioner go there to help people manage their diabetes, um, blood pressure, things like that. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations in care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.